Welcome to the Re-Envision PhD Podcast. My name is Philip Hollingsworth. I received my PhD here at UNC in Romance Studies in 2015, and right now I'm at the Institute for the Arts and Humanities as the coordinator for faculty programs. And I'm Jonathan Foland. I am a graduate student assistant at University Career Services. I received my Master of Arts in Communication Studies from UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm currently working on a doctorate in communication. Our mission with this podcast is to interview PhDs in humanities to learn more about how they have used their degrees in different career paths. In this episode, we interview Associate Director for the Center of the Study of the American South, Patrick Horn, who received his PhD in English and Comparative Literature here at UNC. His dissertation was on empathy and narratology in 19th century American literature. In this interview, we talked with Patrick about how he got involved with the Center for the Study of the American South and how his involvement turned into a full-time position. We also talked about how his involvement with the Center turned into a full-time position and what his work looks like day-to-day. Along the way, Patrick also shared with us tips on how to translate research for general audiences, what he might do differently if he were to start grad school today, and how to find some different experiences outside the classroom or outside the library. My name is Patrick Horn. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of the American South here at UNC. We are an interdisciplinary research center, as the name would suggest. So we support faculty, students, and staff of all different departments around campus and other centers. We do a fair amount of collaborative work with and co-sponsorships with other centers. For example, the Stone Center for Black Culture and History, um, the Carolina Asia Center, the Center for Global Initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many uh, places like the IAH, the Institute for Arts and Humanities, which we especially love and cherish. Um, But we enjoy working with these other centers around campus. So my background is that I came after serving the Air Force for seven years. I was an Air Force intelligence officer on active duty and saw a little bit of the world that way. And then I came back to UNC for graduate school in English and specifically to study Southern American literature, uh, which broadened into a sort of multi-ethnic American project. So I was familiar with UNC and especially the English department faculty and some of our programs, but also the library and other people around campus, including the center where I now work. I was fortunate enough to have a first-year graduate fellowship from the center, so that was how I first became acquainted with it. Uh, But I continued to attend some of their programs as a grad student from time to time as my schedule would allow. And so I spent a little bit of time almost as an audience member before I started to work there. And I think that has served me well because I have often, from the other side, thought what would entice people to come to this event or what would, what would, who would this appeal to? What uh, demographics are we looking for on campus? What's our target audience? In many ways, I think that my experiences as a, as a graduate student in the humanities directly inform my current duties in that role uh, at the center. What was your um, dissertation on? So the topic of my dissertation is narrative empathy for the other, with quotation marks around the other and capital O, other, in American literature from 1845 to 1945. And to translate that into sort of lay speak, I would say I was primarily interested in sites of difference. So that could be racial difference, uh, religious difference, regional difference, gender, etc. But thinking about how these differences are staged in American literature, 
Um, the example of Huck and Jim on the raft would be a classic one. Ishmael and Queequeg from Moby Dick would be another classic example, but they're just uh, myriad examples in the literature. And I became convinced and would still try to argue that these stagings of difference and particularly the empathy that can bridge those differences is very central to American literature. It's certainly not unique to American literature. Uh, you can find it many places. And I realized at some point, I wish it was earlier on, but at some point in the process that the failures of empathy are as interesting, if not more interesting, than the sort of success stories. So it's not to say that American literature is, is just a you know feel-good party. It's not always. And sometimes those failures of empathy or limits of empathy are particularly telling and interesting. The skills you acquired through your PhD work, how do you employ those in your in your daily work at the Center for the Study of the American South? I think there are skills that I gained and I would probably argue that the sensibilities that I gained are more important than the skills. So as an example, I spent a lot of time doing research as a graduate student, writing, editing, spending time in the stacks, looking for sources, that kind of thing, even archival research. I don't do a whole lot of that in my current job. But I do deal directly with scholars who are doing that kind of work or they're presenting their work to the public. So I feel that I understand it. When I hear what they're doing, I can kind of relate maybe more than I would have if I hadn't experienced graduate study. I understand how difficult it is, and so I have great respect for people who have published and have made a career in research and teaching. I think I also bring a, a respect for scholarly work that would be difficult to fully understand if you hadn't done it yourself. I rarely feel like people are treating me differently because I have these three little letters after my name. I don't feel particularly that that distinguishes me as a human being. But I do think that there's a certain amount of understanding that I bring and that the famous professors might show based on their realization that I've, I've done some of that difficult work as well. So to return to the topic of your dissertation a little bit, how did you communicate its substance when you were applying for your position? That's a great question, and I would have to do some soul-searching to in, in deep digging in my memory. Um, Didn't mean to shut it down. No, not at all. Not at all. It's a great question. Well, I think the question of translating your research to a more general audience is central and important, probably for anyone in graduate study, but particularly in the humanities, because so often when you apply for a position, even within your field, but especially outside of your narrow field of study, you're speaking to people that have, at best, a general understanding of the work that you did. So if you can't perfect that, as they call it, elevator speech, or I think that's actually sort of a misnomer, but it doesn't have to be so short that, you know, it's a 30-second spiel. But I think the key is to communicate to general audiences what's important about your work and why you care about it. And to me, that sort of passion tends to be transferable. So when I tell people that I'm passionate about American literature and I love to teach it and I love to read it and I love to talk about it, and here's some of the things that I'm particularly interested in, they don't have to be book lovers or literary types, I think, to relate to that. I mean, they may have some completely different interests. 
And I've often found that when you say, when you open with something like, I'm really passionate about American literature, rarely do people have nothing to say about it. I mean, sometimes they'll tell me about the book that they loved as a child or something. It, It could be something very tangential, but everybody's got something to say about that. And so I think if you can dial back from the technical minutia, which in my case might be something like narratology. So in my field, I became very interested in the study of narrative, and the fancy word for that is narratology, and there are people who write books that are almost impenetrable talking about structures of narrative relations. You know, I could easily lose people with that stuff. But the point is not the technical term for a particular narrative strategy. I think when you when you go to that jargony place or that very technical aspect, you're going to lose people very quickly. But when you start with the sort of fundamental interest that you brought and perhaps the applicability of your ideas or your findings, I think most people can find a way to relate to it. Can you pinpoint like an origin of that passion, perhaps a book when you're a child or a little older or something like that? I can think of several teachers that I had K-12, who really two in particular, um, Mrs. Michaels, Elaine Michaels, and Mrs. Henry, Annie Henry. I had both of them for two years, and both of them profoundly influenced the way I read and thought critically about reading and about literature, and really fostered a passion for it as well. And it was because they were passionate. So I think, again, that deep caring about a subject Even if you don't share the interest, I think it's hard not to be impressed by it and be affected by it. Uh, And in terms of books, I mean, there are many. But I think one classic example for me would be Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And it's a book that I read first in eighth or ninth grade and then again in college. And I've read it in graduate school and I've taught it. For me as a white male southern kid, reading that book was just an absolute education not just in race theory or you know, racial history or strife, but specifically in the way it would feel to be treated as a lesser human being based on something as immutable as race. I just could, could read that book and relate to the, the narrator, the protagonist, the invisible man. And when I've heard in the past, I don't want to go to politics, but I've heard people say, Certain books don't have literary value or quality, and some people have made that claim about Invisible Man. I think they're not reading it very carefully if they say that. There are many books that do this kind of work, and they're not necessarily political books. In fact, Ellison was sort of attacked in his lifetime for not being political enough. What he did was just beautifully convey one man's experience, one young man's experience of disillusionment and struggle and trying to come to terms with this situation of being an American and being African-American, dealing with prejudice, but also being lied to by his own people. Uh, So there's much in that book that you can relate to regardless of race or where you come from. So could you tell us a little bit about how you made a decision to pursue the career path that you've chosen? What's your story? (laughs) There's a funny version and a true version, and they're really both true, but um, I guess I could say, first of all, that while I envisioned myself as an English professor and still maybe do on some days, I never felt passionately that a tenure-track job was the only way I could be happy. I think that there is a certain assumption that that's true 
within academia, and it's it's hard to resist that message, implicit message, day in and day out when you live in an English department. And I do consider that I lived in the English department for those years and still love it very much. So it's not that I didn't want to be a professor, and I, I still part of me still does want that, but I have always been interested in the arts and humanities writ large. So it's never been about a disciplinary interest. Of course, literature is my particular passion, but I can also get really excited about a musical performance or uh, performing arts, drama, the visual arts, anything that uses creativity to speak about the human experience. And so literature does that very powerfully for me, but it's not the only thing that does. So in some ways, I'm attracted to places like a interdisciplinary center that would have history lectures and um, arts events. And we just finished several important literary events around campus, which were really exciting for me. Um, But that interdisciplinarity for me is enriching and exciting. So that drew me to a place like CSAS or the Center for the Study of the American South. And the funny part is, the funny version is, I went to Med Deli for lunch one day. And I had been on the job market for my first year, which I I expected to go badly. Most people say you're on the market for several years. It's this long, slow slog. But I was having lunch, and I ran into a friend, and she worked at the Center for the Study of the American South. And she sat down, and we chatted for half an hour, just friendly conversation. And as she stood up to leave, she said, we just created a job today. You should apply for it as an afterthought. Uh, So when people say, how did you get your job? I always tell them I went to Med Deli. Is there anything that you wish you had done as a grad student in preparation for that job market, that slog, that you would advise current grad students to take advantage of? I think if I were to do it again, I would try to be more creative in the beginning about the digital humanities and what that means and how it might factor into my work. I don't exactly know how I would have done that. There are lots of opportunities on campus. Of course, there's the Digital Innovations Lab, which is relatively new still. There are many people in different departments doing this kind of work and around the country and the the world. I think that we, like it or not, we live in a digital age, and we have to embrace those new tools and technologies, not as gimmicks and not as ways to seem hip to the youth, but to really be creative about reimagining how we do what we do. And again, I'm not quite sure how I would have done that. My sense is that there are a lot of people doing interesting work around this digital scape. But I don't know that we've thought as creatively as we can about how the digital environment should, can, will, must change the way we read, for example. I think some people in the humanities are a little bit browbeaten about this. They feel bad that you know the book is some sort of a dinosaur that's going to go away or the death of the humanities as people have have called it. I thought that was a premature postmortem. Um, but I think that we can really be creative and our students are creative. So engaging these really young people who have way less inhibitions about the way they think and interact with digital platforms and media, harnessing their creativity to help us do a better job. So going along with experiences or things you wish you had done differently, when you go out into the realm of the web and all the joy that you can find in blogs and inside higher ed or at Vita, 
one thing that comes up in, in discussions about diversifying your career path or, or moving outside of academia is find experiences that are outside of teaching. Maybe they're volunteer. Or maybe it's a part-time position to rack up a little bit more relevant, immediately translatable experience. If you had any experiences similar to that, could you speak to those? And if you didn't, could you weigh in on how you feel about that suggestion overall? I think it's a great suggestion, and I think it would be useful, even if it doesn't get you a job. I think it's useful as a human being to go out and meet and interact with other human beings. So this is almost like the opposite of the digital initiative I just suggested. And maybe they make good counterpoints, you know, learn to do fascinating new things with technology on the one hand. On the other hand, turn off your iPad, unplug, go talk to people. In my field of English or literature, I think teaching is an obvious way that you can volunteer or get involved, whether that be a K-12 kind of experience or a volunteer situation, tutoring. There are adult literacy programs. There are prison programs where you can teach. Uh, And I know some people who have done those and found them extremely moving and influential. And I think the more real people that we go interact with in a respectful way, in a mutual way, a symmetrical way, the more we can understand what's needed. I think it's a temptation to sit on a beautiful campus such as ours, in the library, in your carol, in your office, typing away, grading, reading, all of the things we feel like we need to do. And it's easy to get locked into that bubble. And I think that's part of the problem with the humanities, not that I think the humanities are dying or under malaise, but I, I think that the more we can get out into communities and hear from people and see what the humanities mean to them or could mean for them, that's a great way to revitalize a a field that is in a bit of trouble. Our center has sponsored some summer research grants, so people going out into communities, uh, particularly the associate with the Historical Black Towns and Settlements Alliance, HBTSA. And these are historically black towns founded in the late 19th century, often by graduates of Tuskegee University. And the students that have gone to these communities have come from a variety of different fields. We've had people from English and American studies and I think from geography or anthropology. They've gone into these communities for a month or two months during the summer to really see how they can be of assistance. So they're almost like service. They're called research grants, but they're almost like service research. It's like how can our skills be applicable to your community what can the university bring that would be useful and helpful? And they have invariably come back energized and excited and sometimes taking a real turn in their work toward a more praxis-oriented kind of research. And I think that's an example of how getting off campus and seeing how people are living and struggling in their own worlds can inform what we do and make it feel more meaningful. So sometimes I think um, those of us that are in our bubble have a hard time imagining what a a typical workday would look like for someone that's not going tenure track or is not teaching a full course load. So what does a typical workday look like for you? One thing I love about my job is that there's almost not a typical workday. I think I would say there are event days and non-event days. So on an event day, a certain amount of my time and energy is going to be spent outside the office wherever the event is taking place, often on campus but not always. 
on a non-event day, I'm more likely to be found in the office, but not always at my desk the whole time. In recent weeks, I have set up at hotels for a big conference about Southern writers, um, worked with catering for a tell about the South that focused on barbecue and politics, actually drove across Durham to pick up barbecue from rival joints so that we could have comparative tastings. I'm here today doing an interview at the IAH, hoping to attend a guest lecture after this. Sometimes I'm in the English department for events. But there is a lot of email, I'll say, with a you know wry smile. There is a lot of logistical planning, which is not always the most exciting thing that my brain can possibly attain to. But I think that it's necessary and... If you can read 400 pages for a graduate seminar, you can also read and respond to 400 emails. They're not exactly the same parts of your brain, but there's a certain pain threshold that you push through in both situations. So while it does feel a little different sometimes, and admittedly there are days that I don't feel entirely engaged on an intellectual level, overall I would say the job is very satisfying and what it might lack in, say, intellectual rigor at times, it makes up, uh, it, I feel like it. Uh, that lack is complemented by the amazing opportunities I get to meet. For example, last week, six Southern writers who I deeply admire that we flew in from around the country probably wouldn't have had a chance to interact with them. I had written articles about their work as a graduate student now is meeting them and picking them up from the airport, taking them to dinner, and also helping a wider audience learn about their amazing work. If I could just say one more thing off the cuff. Sure. Um, this, is for, this interview is related to the NEH grant. Um, we're all trying to re-envision the humanities PhD. And I will say that from the flip side where I work now um, in working with graduate students, through our center. We've had several internships with graduate students who have worked editing our journal, um, transcribing oral history interviews, doing some publicity work for us, some social media work for us, uh, thinking about audiences and how we get the word out. So they're positions that offer lots of different kinds of opportunity. But I think that those experiences have been very valuable to those grad students, and I imagine that when they go on the job market, they will find them useful. And also just from a resume perspective to say they have these skills. I'm kind of bullish on the internship, and I know that I'm not the only one saying that, and it seems to be a new initiative to get grad students to go do something somewhere else, uh, out in the field or you know in a different office or whatever. But whatever the internship looks like, I do think it's valuable and I think if I had had that opportunity as a graduate student, I would have jumped at it. So I think it would behoove the university to look for more ways to fund these internships because we could take many more grad students currently. We have work for them. We need them. I think it would be a win-win. But in order for it to truly benefit everyone, we need to, to pay them for their work. All right. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. 
The Re-Envision PhD podcast is part of the Re-Envisioning Humanities PhD initiative here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This initiative is funded in part by a grant by the National Endowment for the Humanities. To stay up to date on all things related to Re-Envisioning Humanities PhD, follow us on Twitter at RevisionPhD. Please subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud. For more information on the Center for the Study of the American South, check out their website at south.unc.edu. Our theme music is by Dark Sun. <laughs>